Hey, welcome to RSP Scout Talk. I am Matt Waldman, and with me today is RSP alum, FF Astronauts staff writer, Jay Moyer. You know him on Twitter. Jay does fantastic work on football, and especially running back play. And so it's always great to have Jay come back and, and be able to talk shop about probably our favorite position <laughs> or one of our favorite positions that we share, which is the running back position. So Jay, it's always great to have you. Welcome back. Yeah, today is a great day. Anytime I get to talk football, you know, one thing, but running backs with, with you, it's a day I marked down and look forward to in the calendar. Uh, I, I think we have a lot to unpack. We're through five weeks of the season, which, you know, a little over a quarter. We got our 17-game season this year, but uh, a, a lot to dive into with, I think we're going to focus on the second-year runners. You know, we have a season and a quarter, and, and so really talking about what these guys are. You know, there are narratives, um, and there's a hype and all that stuff. I think the thing that I look forward to with you is, you know, we both sat down and have watched these guys play for, you know, a significant number of snaps, and try to give people the real picture of why some guys are doing this and why some other guys are doing something else. Um, so really excited to be here. Like I said, something I look forward to, you know, for, for days and weeks heading up to it. So let's, let's get to it. Well, same here. Let's do it. And let's start off with, you know, your locale, San Francisco, even though they're not second year players. Um, we have the whole Trey Sermon, Eli Mitchell, Jamichael Hasty. let's bring in some other guys. Who else might get thrown into the mix after Raheem Mostert went down? And that was just kind of a unexpected development that Trey Sermon gets, you know, basically is inactive. And then when Mostert gets hurt, it becomes the Mitchell Hasty kind of show. And then Sermon gets some looks. And then, you know, because he got hurt on his first carry, you know, winds up missing most of practice because they don't know whether he's going to play. So they they roll with use check in the in the goal line roll and the third down roll. They put Debo Samuel in red zone mix, um, and now with Mitchell coming back, you know, although Sermon had a you know it was eleven yards short of a hundred yard day, you know Mitchell comes back and is now the guy. And then we have what you mentioned in a in a tweet. Um, today just talking that's related to this in a sense probably which is Brandon Ayuk who's you know had a, a really fine first year as a wide receiver for them and really has kind of gotten what you we might want to say is the Dante Pettis treatment a little bit you know um, another guy who had a strong first year had things to work on um, and the same thing with same thing with Ayuk yeah you had things to work on but you know, these were guys who were productive and now we're getting, you know, we're getting a lot of interesting, you know, tidbits, for, you know, from John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan to the press. So, you know, dive in wherever you want. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with the Niners, with Shanahan. Um, and really, it even extends to people who worked with Shanahan that you look across the National Football League. Um, you know, you have... LaFleur over in uh, in New York, the Jets offensive coordinator who came directly from San Francisco. And it's sort of the same head scratching scenario with Denzel Mims, another guy who had a very promising rookie year. Definitely had 
you know, skill elements of his game to work on coming out of Baylor where he's not asked to run a big route tree. You know, his body type is not really one of, you know, your agile route running receiver. He's more of a, of a long speed, you know, ball tracking, you know, physical specimen, excellent, excellent prospect there. You'd like to see him develop and he just gets dogged because, you know, for one reason or another, he's not quite what they're looking for. And so to me, to me, you know, it's, it's one thing to do this and your offense comes out, offense comes out like gangbusters. You know, if you come out and produce, you can play whoever you want, but, but these offenses are struggling. And for me, there are several examples of just not getting your best players on the field for reasons that don't really relate to performance. It seems it's more like, you know, you don't necessarily fit the type of guy we're looking for. You don't necessarily fit your practice habits or, you know, how you approach the intellectual side of the game. So in the case of, of the 40, getting back to the 49ers, you know, you have Brandon Ayuk, who, like you said, was very impressive last year, just as not, not saying that he doesn't have skill elements to his game, but just as an athlete, uh, you know, excellent, excellent athletic ability burst after the catch. He's hurtling guys. Um, you know, he catches the ball well, catches it in traffic. So he does a lot of the physical things you're looking for, for a receiver, but again, has has areas of his game you'd like to see him develop in terms of route running, understanding concepts. And, you know, rather than build on that, they he's, he's in the doghouse, he's not playing. So how do you really improve if you're not playing? And then today I read a, a quote from John Lynch saying, you know, essentially he's not where we expected him to be at this point, building off of last year. And so we probably hold him to a higher standard because of his physical talent you know, and sort of explaining how they're treating him. So they had an idea of what they want Ayuk to be in terms of developing from year one to year two, for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, his effort in practice or, or whatever, he's not exactly where they want him to be. So rather than say, okay, let's work on it here, here and here to develop you, you know, we're in this together. You're one of our best receivers. We need you on the field to produce. They've said, well, you're not what we want you to be right this moment, which is essentially, I guess, a superstar is what they're looking for. So, you know, you're not really going to play. You're going to be, you know, barely see the field week one, and you're going to have to scratch and claw your way out of the doghouse. Like you said, with Dante Pettis, it seemed like they are, you know, sort of did the same thing. And I think Ayuk is even a step above Dante Pettis in terms of, you know, his potential and what they he showed as a rookie. So, like I said, it's a real head scratcher. I don't know that it, will lead to a good outcome in terms of developing players. Uh, and then obviously it's hurt their offensive performance, you know, to this point. Let me ask you a quick question really before we under, get yeah, on, yeah. get on to the running back part of that, because I know that we're going to focus a lot on running backs, but what's interesting to me about this is, you know, there's a lot said about that. There really isn't a lot of development in the NFL. Anyway, it's a lot about game plan and executing that game plan. That's what most of the time is devoted to and that these players really have to kind of take private lessons on their own to really work on this stuff before or after practice. And there are certainly things coaches can show them in a film room, can show them out on a practice field, but it's about saying, here's the things you need to work on. Here's how to work on it. And then they got to do the work to do it. So, you know, if I'm going to I'm I agree with you. Like, I think it makes no sense that he's on the field and that, and they're holding them. It sounds like they're holding them to a higher standard. But then if I were to like, just so that we could from, from a st standpoint of entertainment and for 
us to really kind of explore this in depth. If I were to play devil's advocate with this and I think to myself this question, well, if they re want to rely on him to be a certain way and to, to play a certain way or to have a certain level of skill sets and he hasn't achieved that. Now, if they've told him that or they've outlined that to him and he hasn't gotten there because he's just a, he thinks he's arrived because he's because he had a good year last year which a lot of rookies tend to do they arrive and then they 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 think I'm I'm there and I figured it out and haven't continued to get better I think Tony Gonzalez kind of figured that out after his second year after his worst year and then he started doing some of the things of really working hard and he talked about that in retrospect in his career but if that's happening as a coach, I can see how maybe a coach would go, well, I have to set an example for my team. If I let him not do what he's supposed to do and I keep playing him and rewarding him with playing time, am I ever going to create a culture where people do what I need them to do? But then the other side of that that is worth talking about is like, well, why not get the best out of him from your team this year and if you don't like what he did this entire year, find somebody else the next year, you know, and and trade him or get rid of him. If that's what, if he doesn't fit what you do and he and he clearly isn't doing what you asked. I mean, I, I think that, that those are great points. What I would say to that, you know, having coached in the past and having thought about this quite a bit is, it in my opinion, it really is the coach's job to make sure that the best players are ready to play. And so when you wash your hands of the player development and you wash your hands of, of putting in the effort to get through to a player and saying, you know, it's on you, it's on you. You have to do what I want you to do. If you don't do that, you're not going to play. That's fine. And that's what a lot of coaches choose to do but you are going to miss opportunities with very talented players who maybe for one reason or another aren't able to function in, in that kind of organizational structure. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It doesn't mean that they're not a hard worker. It, it, does, it really is just not everybody is able to function the same way. And it's the coach's job to make sure that they can work with those different personality types, those different players to ensure that the guys who give us the best chance to win are on the field. And this doesn't mean you look the other way and just ignore and just hold him no, to no standard at all. But you, it, it's, it's incumbent upon the coach to figure out a way to put that player in a position to do what he's asked to do, to do what you want him to do so it doesn't appear as if you're playing a favorite. And so really you're not, you're not violating any code of, you know, culture or conduct. Um, and th that may sound confusing, but I mean, let, let me try to think of an example no, I mean, of what I'm saying. And as you so do, like say, okay, go ahead. Say, so some players, right. Are, there's, there are varying levels and I'm not saying this is the case with IU. There are very varying le levels of intelligence or study habits to where some players can learn every position on offense. And so maybe a coach says, well, I want all my receivers to know every single position on offense. Well, you're setting a bar where you're putting a lot of value on book knowledge and 
football intelligence when, yes, that's a big part of, of football play, but there are other things that matter. And not every player who can help you win games is going to have a high score True. in their book, book smarts and football intelligence. So if you say, okay, well, I'm only going to play those players who know every position on the field, you're going to end up with a lot of guys like Muhammad Sanu, who, yes, he's an extremely intelligent receiver, but physically he doesn't have what it takes at this point in his career to be a starting, you know, high rep NFL receiver. And so if you set a bar that that really puts a lot of value on one thing, in this case, knowing every position, what you're going to do is you're going to disqualify players from reaching that example of culture and work ethic because you've set an extremely high bar that's not realistic for some guys, no matter how hard they work within their first couple of years. So Ayuk, you know, as an example, may not know every position and maybe they want them to know every position. And they say, because we've asked our receivers to do this and you're not doing it, we can't play you. Well, why set the bar that high? He doesn't need to know every position to be a functional player. You know, teach him one position and allow that athletic ability to shine through. And if, if you, if you don't make your, you know, your, your bars <laughs> excessively high in certain things, then you won't end up having to make examples out of players for, you know, yes, you want reasonable expectations, but if they're unreasonably high expectations, then you're going to end up in a situation where, yeah, you can't play guys because you've said you want them to do X, Y, and Z. And that may be a bar only, you know, half of the players on the roster can actually achieve. Yeah, because and this is a fantastic point and i and i agree with this a thousand percent because the real issue is that as a coach you're not the confusing part for people might be is that as a coach you are both a manager of processes and a teacher you have to be both to be effective or if you're going to manage processes you have to understand that managing an operation is not theory you can you know i mean that's the thing where the analytics part can get it wrong because they're so in-depth in theory that they don't think about the practice of it now, now some of the theory can be very helpful towards practice and and it and it's and what's going on it can be very good but the problem is is that when you're an operations manager you're about getting shit done and you're about adjusting to what happens in the course of your season and that's not just about injuries it's not just about what other teams are doing to you it's about looking at your preseason and going how have my players developed who's gotten better who hasn't but what do i need from them brandon i you know this example brandon Ayuk is talented He's going to be, he's a better runner right now than Muhammad Sanu is. You know, since, you know, it's been like probably seven years since Muhammad Sanu could even be in the same neighborhood as a runner after the catch as Ayuk is. You know, Ayuk did very well with these specific things that we asked him to do in the offense. Well, maybe we wanted to do more with that. But are we doing more with that with anybody that we've got on the field? And the answer is no. They're, they're not getting an upgrade in with the people who are doing the other things because they don't make the impact plays with the that Ayuk is capable of making beyond Samuel. So why not understand that instead of sticking dogmatically to your plan, which again, sounds like Matt Nagy, but on a higher level, Matt Nagy was in love with his game plans to the point that everything 
every solution was curl routes as we joke around with it, you know, to make it a, you know, until basically he had a come to Jesus meeting with his staff and players after that, you know, gross negligence that he put on Justin Fields. And they were, and you could tell it was either BS on his part or it was a real awakening of, oh, wow, yeah, I need to delegate and I need to match what's good for my players, even though I have this idea. Because a lot of these coaches get hired because they're quote unquote geniuses or really good at what they specifically bring to, brought to the table that the, the owners wanted or the GM wanted. And they forget that they're actually a coach. They weren't hired to be an offensive coordinator. They weren't off hired to be like, this is football university. We're at the University of San Francisco football, um, you know, football central, where, you know, we're we're delving into the theory of, you know, wide receivers who play multiple spots. You know, I mean, so as a result of that, I think the problem with Shanahan is that like Matt Nagy, he's stuck on his system and stuck on his theory as opposed to going, what makes you what makes these players great and how do I make get the most out of them for right now? And yeah, setting that bar way too high. And if, yes, if Ayuk's a goof off or he's, you know, doing things that hurt the team, then you've got to make the tough call. But if you're, but if you, if it's that bad, then you would have cut him or trade him by now. If that were the issue, if it's just that he, he hasn't learned fast enough to your standard. Well, Here's a good example of someone who's had trouble for years because he's great on the field with the ball in his hand or with the ball near him, but he's not he's not a complete route runner and he he kind of spent he has skills that span two positions and that's Cordero Patterson who was always known as a guy who couldn't really translate the game plan at a highest level to the field without tons of practice reps that they didn't have time to be able to do at this level. And finally, a team's kind of figured out what works, what he does well, and how to mold him into their offense to get the most out of him. Yeah, can I jump in here? Yeah. <laughs> this is a great conversation. I don't know that this was necessarily the plan, but it's a lot of fun. Um, at the end of the day, in the NFL, it's about winning, right? Like, yeah. In high school football, maybe you can make it you can make a case. Well, winning is not necessarily the only goal of high school football. You want to teach players good lessons. You know, most of these players are going to be, you know, making working in sales or what have you in 10 years. So let's not do everything we can to win. You can try to prove culture points in high school. In the NFL, people want to win. The players who are working, what they want to do is win. They know who the best players are. Yeah. Nobody on the 49ers is going to say, oh, I can't believe they're letting Ayuk play because, you know, he doesn't do X, Y, and Z, or he acts this way during this time, and, you know, that's not really worth it. I mean, I'm not in their locker room, but I can tell you in locker rooms I've been in, when players who team who, who players know can help them win are not being played for reasons other than performance, it usually does not sit well in the locker room. Because those players all know who the best players are and everybody in that locker room really just wants to win and they don't care what the player is doing on his downtime or during this other time as long as he brings it when he's on the field on Sundays. That's a um, great point. You know, Antonio Brown, right? For, right? for years in Pittsburgh, 
all you hear about off the field is crazy antics. Him and Ben Roethlisberger eventually wouldn't even talk to each other. I mean, the dude was the best receiver in the NFL over the course of a decade. Yep. The Steelers easily could have said, you know, this guy's a loose cannon. He's doing all this crazy stuff off the field. We're not going to play him. We can't play a guy like that. Well, look at what they would have lost out if they had taken that approach to Antonio Brown. You know, they won a Super Bowl. They are a very good team for all these years, one of the best passing offenses in the NFL because Mike Tomlin said, this guy's, you know, he's a little different. But but he is a Hall of Fame caliber receiver, and he can help us win. So my job is to find a way to make sure that we can fit him into our structure, into our framework in a way that works for our team and we can provide a good winning culture while accommodating a guy who may not be the ideal personality that we want or that any coach would want for building their program. And there are ways to do that, that, you know, facilitate people. Not everybody has all the strengths that coaches have. A lot of coaches want players to be like them. Everybody wants, so everybody who has success looks for people that have the same talents as them. And, to be a coach, you have to be, you have to work your ass off. You have to study a lot. You probably don't, you know, don't necessarily need to be the most gifted person, but you got to be organized. So these coaches want players, you know, you see it all the time. It's, you know, with, with coaches who seem like they stepped out of a, you know, a couple decades ago in terms of how they approach just interactions on a day-to-day basis. And everybody's like, why are these coaches all act like, you know, 70 year old guys shaking their canes at the clouds? Well, because that's the kind of personality that gets you to that position. But you, you can't expect everybody on your football team to have the personality and the talents and the, the, the areas of excellence that a coach does. And so coaches who want guys that remind them of themselves will miss out on, you know, talented players who for whatever reason or another, don't fit all, don't check all the off field boxes, you know, like Antonio Brown didn't check all the off field boxes for all these years. So, yeah, it's about inclusivity. Honestly, it's a form of inclusivity that's lacking with being a coach. Because when you hire people who are like you, they don't have to look like you, you know. But even if they don't look like you, they may act like you. And if you do that, you're not really being inclusive because you're not honoring the real differences of what brings to the table. And that's where inclusivity can be very helpful because it does bring... It's about honoring the strengths of other people and knowing that you're getting the most out of the talents there rather than limiting them because you want them to be in a certain box that's too restrictive. So with that point of view, let's end the San Francisco conversation. But before we do, let's talk about this through the lens of Elijah Mitchell and Trey Sermon in the backfield. What are your thoughts on this backfield and these backs right now? I mean, I think that they have complementary skill sets in it's interesting. You look at Kyle Shanahan's history, right? You go back to Atlanta where they had um, Devontae Freeman. And then while he's there as the offensive coordinator, they go out and they bring in Tevin Coleman, you know, spend a pretty high draft pick, draft pick relatively on him. Not not as skilled of a runner as Free- Freeman, but really, you know, physically more gifted, more explosive. Uh, that, you know, the theory of that one cut and go runner in the wide zone offense that, you know, Maybe historically, if you look at production, you know, the idea of, of time speed and explosiveness doesn't necessarily match to the guys who are who have been most productive in that system. Terrell Davis, 
wasn't necessarily the fastest or most explosive runner. What he was, was, you know, a perfect skill fit for that offense where he was decisive. He could plan his outside foot, get upfield and go. Now you can do that without running a four, three or four, four. To me, it seems that Kyle Shanahan has always really placed a premium on those physical attributes, you know, with Coleman, with Elijah Mitchell to where, you know, when you watch these guys play, I highlighted this after week uh, one when Mitchell got a bunch of reps. There were a ton of missed opportunities in their outside zone running game Yes, for cutbacks. And really what you're looking for in an outside zone runner is a guy who can hit that cutback seam because 90% of the time with that run, it's going to result in a cutback. Really the, the way it's designed, which is to stretch the front side of the field laterally and create a cutback lane, the way it's designed is for a guy to hit that cutback lane and get upfield. And you can't just – just because you're fast, that doesn't mean that you know how to do that. And so he was having troubles with, one, diagnosing the cutback lanes, yep. so seeing them. He was a step behind on his reads. He was, you know, sort of – often when running backs, when it's moving too fast on them, you can see them sort of guessing. To me, it looked like often he was guessing. And then, two, when he was identifying the reads correctly, he also lacked the physical ability to make the cuts necessary to access those cutback lanes. So he, he, he was not able to cut back laterally enough to get to the hole that he sees. So he's running into his own blockers. He's running into arm tackles, you know, a half a gap to a gap over to where he needs to be just because physically he was unable to jam that outside foot. To me, it looked like he just doesn't have the leg strength and explosiveness to really change direction like that. He's much more of a speed and momentum runner. Um, so I don't think it's a good fit for their running style at all, really. Other than if they can create a huge hole, it's nice that he's fast because that's really the only way he's going to create value. You know, how when I look at running backs, I say, how are they adding value to their touches? The way that he can add value to his touches, it's really one-dimensional, and it's just using his speed through a clear lane that doesn't require much change of direction to access. You know, when, when I watch him, I don't see him. He's not that elusive. No. Um while he can generate power with his speed, he's not a tackle breaker. He doesn't have great contact balance. So it's it's really one-dimensional, and I think they've suffered with him on the field because of that in terms of their rushing efficiency because he's been missing a lot of opportunities. Whereas Trey Sermon may not be as fast, but he's a very skilled runner. He does have much more lateral agility. He has more burst in terms of change of direction. And he's also much more skilled through contact. You know, he's 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 a guy who reminds me in a lot of ways of Ezekiel Elliott. I don't think that he necessarily is as no. good yeah. as Elliott. He's not as strong. He's not quite as fast as Elliott was in his prime. Um, but in terms of, you know, using his his footwork and his pads to maximize his runs between the tackles, you know, doing things like turning his shoulder a certain way so he doesn't take a hit square and he can drive through an extra one or two yards at the end of a run. He does that stuff extremely well, and his his strengths actually really, really highlight Mitchell's weaknesses. Yep. <laughs> and even though he may not break the 50-yard run through a giant hole, I think their offense would be much more consistent with him getting a bulk of the carries as opposed to having Mitchell get a bulk of the carries. Um you know that that's that's my take on those two guys. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you. I don't have much different to add. I mean, Mitchell Mitchell can't seem to keep his feet to be able to make a cut 
in certain situations. And defenses started seeing him. And Philadelphia shut him down in the second week of the of the season. I mean, they they shut him down on those outside lanes. And, you know, when you look at Sermon, yeah, I mean, Sermon has been efficient and been able to create yardage where yardage wasn't there. Um, you know, in the instances that he has been on the field more than Mitchell when Mitchell's been in those situations or in similar situations. So, yeah, I'm totally with you. It's about, you know, stopping fast is more important than being able to run fast. Can you stop fast and change direction and and make that efficient play where your feet are aligned with your eyes and what you see and you understand how the play develops? So, you know, to be honest, after watching Khalil Herbert last year and seeing him in Chicago, if they want a cutback runner <laughs> that gives them speed, um, Khalil Herbert probably was still there for them. Probably what in round five, round six, they could have probably gotten him and gotten the best of both worlds. Maybe not the best of both worlds, but they would have gotten an even blend of what Mitchell and, and Sherman brings to the table, and they might have been a little happier, you know, in hindsight. But it seems to me that. Shanahan does have a type, which is a, a fast guy who doesn't understand the position um, when it comes to anything more than maybe certain gap plays like toss. You know, that would be I mean, what, what I would love is is to be a fly on the wall in the room when they talk about like I would love to know the reasons behind their running back rotation. Like, you know, sometimes it's, it's pass blocking or just, you know, like knowing the whole offense or what have you. Uh in my opinion, Elijah Mitchell does not appear to have any leg up on Trey Sermon as a pass blocker. No. So I don't know if it gets to something else. But for me, with when I when I see this sort of blind spot, in my opinion, a blind spot, you know, even as it related to like Freeman and Coleman uh, back in the day, it's are the coaches aware of it? Are these decisions being made with full awareness of it? You know, are they saying, well, we know Mitchell may not be the most skilled guy, but we like someone who's fast. I think I can create holes and and get him into space or is it just a blind spot? Like I would just love to be in the room and hear how they talk about these guys because you know, the stuff that we, that you and I talk about a lot with running backs in terms of some of the more nuanced factors of, of performance, like you don't really hear people talk about it. And I wonder how much it's talked about even in NFL rooms because a lot of running back discourse is like size speed, you know, they yeah, big, fast. Yeah, and 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 it's all instinctive, you know, which is like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. instincts. Yeah. Instincts, yeah. Big, fast, good instincts, right? So it, it totally discounts the intellectual side of running back play, which you've seen with a guy like Frank Gore, you know, who, who <laughs> yeah. led the NFL in rushing over the course of two decades. Yeah. <laughs> um, at the end of his career, it wasn't that he was the biggest, fastest, strongest. It's just the intellectual and the, the skill component of the position he was always so good at, which, you know, you you would like to see people start to appreciate that more. Uh, but what it does is it creates opportunities for teams that, that get it, now that, know, like, like everything. Yeah, well, now that we've spent, you know, a good half hour talking about this, and I think <laughs> it was an important thing. I mean, I think this was quite valuable. People are going to like this. And throwing tomatoes at basically the 49ers coaching staff <laughs> from a from a from a two way window type of thing, you know, throwing it over the the barrier, I guess somehow or going. Maybe we opened up a little ceiling tile on each side, you know, and we were just tossing like 
rotten vegetables over uh, into their war room. Um, let's talk. I mean, like I said, it's one thing if they're going out there and lighting teams up every week, but their offense has, has really it's underperformed crappy. this year. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're not, they're not playing well at all. And well, same thing with the jet. You know, I brought up the Jets. same thing with the jets. They're doing it with men's they're doing it with their running back rotation. It's yeah. like, well, what are you trying to do here? You know, you guys are really struggling. Part of it, part of it may be that you're not playing your best players. The dolphins, you know, I pointed out this week on Twitter, yeah. There are certain teams that, to me, have not been willing or able to get their best players in positions to succeed. Uh, a guy like Bill, Be- coach like Bill Belichick, you know, he's never been a hard ass who tries to get every player to do everything he wants him to do. What he has done is he's taken guys that have been those castoffs, and he said, "Here, you do what you're really good at. Yeah, you do that. Just do Kyle that." Kyle Van Noy, you do what you're exactly. good at. Yeah, do what you're good at. Don't worry about all the other stuff. We're going to put you in position to succeed. And I mean, you know, Bill Belichick's job is not to teach Kyle Van Noy a lesson about working his butt off to learn something he's not good at. His job is to win football games. So, you know, this whole like, oh, culture, what happens if I let the guy do that? Well, I think the culture sort of builds itself once you sustain a winning program. Yep. I love it. I love it. So let's move to some of these second year backs. Let's start. Let's get right into it with DeAndre Swift. What have you seen from DeAndre Swift? Um, he's certainly been very productive from a box score standpoint. Um, for me on film, I'll just lead off and say I still don't love his inside running. I still don't love his route running. I I don't think that he's much of a tackle breaker, um, and I think that he's still a, a little bit inefficient as a runner. Um, with certain types of plays between the tackles, he's used a lot, uh, you know, more on plays where he's running to space they're, and they're using him in that way and it's succeeding, but you can see the clear delineation between who's the more skilled runner on a broad range of things. And that's Jamal Williams. He's just not maybe in certain ways as physically as talented, but I would say both of them are flawed in a physical talent spectrum. Yeah, so I mean, you took a lot of the words out of my mouth as I'm it relates, sorry. To, and we, we, it's all right because you know you and I might be the only two guys <laughs> in the world, in the world who would have this conversation about DeAndre Swift because, you know, who is DeAndre Swift? Well, very early on, he played at Georgia, uh, had a lot of hype. He is that sort of big, fast, explosive, you know, all pass catching, running back, all this. So he checks a lot of the uh, the hype boxes that you get in terms of like non-skill components of running back play. So there's this idea of him that he really is an elite running back and he was an elite prospect and all this stuff. But for me, he always had holes in his game that relate to a lot of the skill things that you just mentioned. Uh, you know, at, at Georgia, they ran a lot of inside zone. He In inside zone, ideally, you can, you know, use leverage – to manipulate second level defenders sort of create for yourself. He doesn't do that. He doesn't press the hole. Uh, you know, he's not manipulating second level defenders. Uh, he's not really creating the hole is the hole based on how the lineman block it. He'll run through it and then he'll get tackled by the first guy who comes. So the, the ability to do really anything to add value to his runs again, get, getting back to how does he add value? It's really just physically, physically, you know, he's big and fast. And he has good burst and he, he can sort of change direction, but I wouldn't say he's necessarily that elusive. No. Unless you really get him in space. He doesn't have 
the short area elusiveness, the pad level manipulation to break tackles in tight spaces. Um, so what you see is him picking up what's blocked and then often getting tackled by the first guy who's there. And you can find, you know, hundreds of running backs in the NFL who can do that just fine. Um, Jamal Williams is actually much more refined as a runner, like, you know, like you sort of alluded to. Uh, he will press holes. You know, he will anticipate leverage um, and he'll add value to those inside zone runs. And so what you see is, you know, Anthony Lynn actually, I've, I've had fun watching their running offense because I like the way that he uses both of these guys. Yes. He actually has Swift run a lot more gap style play, you know, tosses, counter, power, trap, where the, the hole is dictated and you're using blocking angles to sort of create a bigger hole. Let's get Swift into space and get him downfield. Whereas Jamal Williams with those zone runs, it's a lot more on the running back identifying leverage and saying, okay, running back, we have everybody going this way. Your job is to create. Your job is to create a game and, you know, make chicken soup out of chicken. So uh, Jamal Williams has been, has been running their zone runs. Swift has been running their gap runs. It's a pretty clear uh, split in terms of how Lynn has decided to deploy these blacks backs. Uh, sorry about that. These backs. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when it gets back to the passing game, too, Jamal Williams is also – he's he's very reliable passing game block, and I think – passing game back. And I think reliability is something that's overlooked. Uh, you know, he's a good pass blocker. He actually runs better routes for my money than DeAndre Swift. Oh, without doubt. But it gets back, it gets back to that, that physical component. Why do the Lions keep passing the ball to DeAndre Swift? And it's not that he's a great route runner. It's not that he's even getting open through skill. It's really, you know, he's had a lot of check downs and they, they have given him screens to get him into space because he is big, he is fast. And if we can get him into space, he can create some plays for us. So, you know, when you, when you hear talk about this rookie class, everybody, everybody wants, everybody wants the chiefs, for example, to have drafted Deandre Swift um, because there's this idea that he's elite for me. He's sort of in the middle pack of NFL running backs, a, a guy who's best in a one-two punch like this where you can use the skill sets of another back to hide some of the deficiencies of DeAndre Swift. And I admire what Anthony Lynn has done. You know, he, he has a history of coaching running backs, the history of, of, of making coaching offenses that have effective running games. I admire what he's done in terms of how he's applied Williams, how he's applied Swift, and I don't – I don't see it as a situation where DeAndre Swift is being held back by the coaching staff. And why do they keep giving it to Williams? Williams is playing a very important role in that backfield and is actually making DeAndre Swift look better because Swift can just focus on doing what he does well. You know, getting back to our original conversation, yeah. if they bench DeAndre Swift because he's not good at inside zone running, well, now you're missing out on what he brings as a space player. And so there's, they're saying, okay, well, he's good in space. Let's get him into yeah. space. Yeah. Uh, now, and, you know, it, it highlights the strengths of both of those guys. Yeah. Now, if they had like, if they had like multiple good receivers and they're playing a one back offense with a, you know, a lot of 11 personnel in a way where maybe they felt like we have enough playmakers on the outside who can run after the catch, who can do damage in space. I, they might use DeAndre Swift less because of the the contrast that they could use with 
the versatility that Jamal Williams brings to the table. But right now in that offense, I mean, when you look at them and you go, well, Khalif Raymond's the only guy with real speed on that, you know, on the outside, and we have a bunch of piecemeal parts at wide receiver where guys are very limited in what they do well, they're not much of a threat at the wide receiver position at this point. And where they have guys who have potential, they're young, and like Amon Ross St. Brown. So when you look at this, I mean, DeAndre Swift, you see that they they try to creatively use both of them. And with Swift, no, he rounds off his breaks. He does not get good separation as a route runner. He's someone that doesn't break back to the ball well. He, you know, in terms of um, the the run game, you you said it very well. He When he does look like he's cutting back, it's because he's on a play where they create so much space, he can kind of bend in and out or or out in you know, based on where his starting point is and then going to that open space. But he's not that guy, you know, who he's never really been that guy. And his speed is build-up speed. He's not a bursty back. He doesn't have that quick, you know, people talk about him having great quickness, but then when you looked at his combine, well, when you looked at his tape, he always got caught from behind. Like very rarely did he have breakaway runs at Georgia for being a fast guy. But then when you saw I mean, he, he was getting caught from behind by linebackers in call in college, you know, there yeah. are times where he gets the open field and he's not able to accelerate and separate from linebackers. Yeah. And so for me, that's always concerning. And um, when you look at his time, that's the point. When you look at his time, his 40 yard time was great, but his shuttle times that showed acceleration were subpar. Well, not were below starter level. They were like committee or like reserve level type of times which tell you he needs a long runway to build up to that top speed, which again is like, you know, people over, they don't understand the relationship with those types of metrics and how they relate to what you see on film with him. So, so what about, what about Jonathan Taylor? You know, we saw, you know, Jonathan Taylor struggled a little bit last year for a while, and then he seemed to hit his stride and, you know, really took off at the end of the year from a production standpoint. And this year he's also been strong from a production standpoint. What what have you noticed from him? I mean, when I when I studied Taylor, the thing that stood out about their offense in college back at Wisconsin is just they had a very unique running game that's very different than a lot of NFL run games. You know, they they run gap concepts frequently. They'll run pin pull all the time. So, you know, it's basically a run and if you're if you're uncovered you're blocking down and then the next the guy next to you is going to pull and go front side and he he was very very skilled at with, with those plays it's about timing and burst so you want to time your path to your pullers once they initiate contact you want to be essentially bursting off of their block through the hole and he is very good at that very linear player you know gets upfield very efficiently uh and he is really explosive he is really fast he has good, you know, good pad usage, so he can slip tackles without having to get sideways. And what that does, and what that did at Wisconsin, is it created a lot of explosive runs. Um, and I think that that those talents have unsurprisingly translated to the NFL, um, where maybe you know on on certain types of runs he doesn't have the decision-making consistency that you would want it, you know, like, like Nick Chubb on outside zone is very, very skilled outside runner and has a lot of the same 
physical capabilities as Jonathan Taylor. Taylor is not there yet right. as far as a skilled decision maker. But what he does is when he gets in a good spot, you know, his running style is efficient enough. He can make a guy miss in a tight space that he's a very dangerous player because he's a threat to take it to the house, you know, on any, on any given play. Um, so what I, what I've seen from him, a lot of his struggles last year is for whatever reason, the Colts at the beginning of the year, they were trying to have him run a lot of outside zone. And I think that outside zone, you know, again, you get back to that stereotypical back of like, okay, that one cut explosive runner is perfect for outside zone. And he is sort of a one cut explosive runner, but he hadn't developed his keys in terms of what is re- what he's reading, you know, what information he's using to decide when and where to cut. And so you see him second guessing himself a lot and, and missing out on opportunities that were there that could be accessed by a more skilled outside zone back like Chubb or, uh, you know, Dalvin Cook, another guy who does that extremely well. And I, th- I think that, one, he's gotten better at that. And, two, he's gotten a little more opportunity to really use his skill uh, to get him in space and, and, you know, use his explosiveness, essentially, to get a field and go. Um, I mean, I, I think he's very talented back. I think as he grows, he's only going to get better and better. Uh, you know, there, there are areas where he can improve on just with more experience, especially with zone running. Uh you know, I, I think the there's just a lot of potential for him to develop into a truly elite uh, NFL running back. Yeah, could yeah, and then when you see his receiving skills, which were again, it's hard to see at Wisconsin all the time in terms of quantity, but the quality of receiving skills were there if you were able to see enough exposures. I mean, like I saw enough exposures where I go, he can track the ball, he can catch the ball. He, you know, I, there's no problems there. It's about really at that point, can he start develop as a route runner? Can he be a guy that they can utilize what he does well in space? Can they, you know, can he make sure that he's getting, you know, making the most of the opportunities they put there? He may not be an Austin Eckler type, but he's certainly a guy that you can use his speed to get downfield on occasion, but you can also use him as an outlet and, and a screen guy and get a ton out of him. Yeah, no, he definitely showed the the hands and the ball skills in at at Wisconsin. So it it is always just sort of a question of okay, will he get to a staff that doesn't put him in a box as a two down thumper, right? Yeah, because he does. Yeah, he's not McCaffrey. He's not Eckler. He's not going to run an option route. You know, put the linebacker in a blender, break, and get five yards of separation. That's not him that doesn't mean he's useless as a receiving back. You can get him on screens. You can get him, you know, get him in a swing route, get him in space. Look at Leonard Fournette. Look at Leonard Fournette. I mean, that's a, there's a similarity from that perspective of like usage, not skill, but usage. And he can be effective that way when he holds onto the ball. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, let's go to a, did you want to finish? Let you finish your yeah, I mean, thought. Maybe this will maybe this will transition to our our, our next yeah. spot to talk about because with John and the Taylor, you know he he's really like the role that the Chiefs have for Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Like, why didn't they draft Jonathan Taylor? <laughs> because yeah, and and you know this is a guy we're going to talk about. So I don't know if you plan to talk Go about him it. now. Go but, for it. You know, nice, nice segue. 
because you, you get a guy like Taylor in their offense, right? Their offense is designed to create space with their receivers. So what you want is a running back who is explosive and efficient and is going to be able to create explosive plays using that space. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is not that kind of player. He is a guy who whose best skill coming out of college as a runner, you know, he they ran duo at LSU, by far their most successful yes. and frequent run play. He's an inside zone duo back. That's what he is. He's not a home run hitter. He's not an outside zone, one cut and go explosive runner. He's a guy who, who needs to be in an offense where they want to displace teams vertically and they want their backs to manipulate the second level and pick up those seven, eight, nine, ten yard runs as part of an offense that's committed to an inside zone or duo vertical Bay. lateral displacement. Yes, Tampa Bay would be a perfect fit for his skill set. I don't I don't know why the Chiefs drafted. I don't know what they saw in him, but the way that they use him the way that they seem to want him to operate is much more, in my opinion, much more appropriate for a guy like Taylor. And if you wanted a guy, they run a bunch of stretch zone out of shotgun. If you wanted a guy who you could say, okay, we got all this space. Let's get a guy who can hit a crease and go. You know, I talked about Taylor needs to learn how to be as effective as possible on outside zone. He's not quite there yet, but he's getting better. But if you, if you can create space, doesn't matter. Get a guy who's explosive. Yeah. You know, Taylor is just as skilled as Edwards Hilaire as a as a player, just in a very different way. And it's not like they use Edwards Hilaire. You know, the thing he did at, at college, which is why a lot of people liked him, is he was the guy that was running those option routes. You know, they get him out of the backfield. He is separating from linebackers, and Joe Burrow's hitting him underneath. You know, again, he's not taking it 70 yards for a touchdown, but those 10, 15 yeah. yard chain moving, you know, he's a chain mover, but if you're not building your offense around the running game, you don't really need a chain mover. What you want is a guy that's going to take his 10 touches. And if one of those 10 touches, he's going to run for a 70 yard touchdown. So, you know, for, for me, I would have liked to have seen Taylor in a role in Kansas city for what they have with Clyde Edwards, Hilaire, Edwards, Hilaire, like you said, Tampa Bay, that's probably the best, possible scenario for you know how they use their backs what they're looking for in a running back yeah and that's that's the tough part because i mean mahomes too when you look at him as a player good or for bad he's he's not looking for that check down and because he's so extraordinary at extending a play you often see him make throws that most people wouldn't get away with and be able to find intermediate his intermediate routes are often check downs compared to what, you know, most people would throw to the back as an outlet. And so when you look at Hilaire, I mean, you've shown some good tape on Twitter of showing how he can manipulate defenders or take bad situations and turn them into good ones, you know. And, you know, he's quick-footed. He's strong enough at the point of attack that if wrapped high, he's someone that's going to be able to help get a push. He's, he's a bully in the open field in terms of being able to work through contact, you know, and he does see the field well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is this is not a great match for him. Um, I mean, I think that when, a, a comparison that I heard from you during their draft process, you know, two years ago, was a poor man's Emmett Smith. And I think that that is a great – it's a great comparison as a runner. 
because what's what the Cowboys were and what Smith was, they had a very good offensive line. They tried to bully teams inside, and Emmett Smith was an excellent decision maker, you know, very efficient. He can make guys miss without having to go too far sideways, but it's not that he was the most explosive back yeah. or that he was, you know, getting in the open field and outrunning tackling angles, et cetera. But they had committed to that style of running. And Edwards Hilaire, that's the to be consistently effective and productive, you know, he gets a lot of grief from the fantasy space uh, because he hasn't been as productive as people would have liked in terms of stats. For him to really achieve that kind of production, he has to be in an offense that's really going to commit to his skill set because he was—he never was a running back where you could say, "Okay, we're going to plug him in and we can run any system we want." You know, Adrian Peterson—you put him in any system, and he's going to have success. Nobody thought Clyde Edwards-Helaire was Adrian Peterson. Um, so you know, they, they, there's a lot of consternation, both from Chiefs fans and fantasy players, as to why isn't Edwards-Helaire producing. And, I mean, to me, they drafted him in the first round and really have made no effort to say, okay, we drafted this guy because we wanted him to be this, and this is part of our offense. It's more of, you know, he's a cherry on top of this gigantic Sunday that they've already established, and we're going to run our offense. You know, he's, he's probably not the best fit. Maybe we should have taken Jonathan Taylor, but yeah, it is Man. what it is. Now, that doesn't mean Edwards Hilaire isn't a good player. He just would be a better fit in certain offenses – and the Chiefs would be better off with a certain type of back than what they have in Edward T. Lair. Yeah, I think the theme of this show should be that the should jokingly be running back analysis doesn't matter because we really just analyze passing offenses in in media these days. Um, and we really think that running backs are just these instinctive savants who who really don't have any like intellectual understanding of what they do. They just somehow run to open space. Um, you know, and so, you know, and that's the thing. That's why this show, I think, is going to get a lot of listens because people are hearing things that they normally don't hear um, other places, you know, when it comes to fit, why they would fit in a certain way, why they'd be really good in certain areas, what traits that they display. And with that in mind, I mean, I want to get. This is to... why I look. This is why I look forward to these conversations because yeah. this stuff built. This stuff builds in my chest. I get. <laughs> I get frustrated. I get. I literally. I get frustrated. I'm like, man. I need to. I need to talk to Waldman. We need to do a podcast. This is like. Yeah. You know, it builds over the. I understand. I, I actually reached out to Matt. I reached out to Matt to schedule this, um, because of you know that. And I frustrated was, with the analysis yeah. on these guys. And I was uh, obviously more than happy to do it because I'm I'm in the same place. Like there's there's days I'm like I don't want to talk to anybody anymore because if I just see if I just see another another person, whether it's an analyst or or not, talk about you know like this, they might as well when they talk about running backs, it's like going, yeah, that Louis Armstrong, he sure just he just played from the heart and he just like. He he! It just was just some some just gift from God, you know. He yeah, did, yeah. You know, well, people do that. People, he actually learned how to play music, you know. And well, people do language. and did. I mean, people especially years ago did talk about those musicians that way. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's all instinct. It's all, you know, his love. He has these giant lungs. He has this great instinct, and yeah. totally me, discredits yeah. the. The, the skill of the performance. Let me tell you something. I'm learning two. I'm learning two instruments right now, and I'm learning how to improvise. 
And if you if you were to see when you guys look at my podcast or shows that I'm on, like on Football Guys or some other podcast where we do video, and you see like the board filled with stuff, well, the other half of the board is filled with music theory that is not instinctive. I promise you that. You know, you can hear there are some guys who hear all of that and can do it, but they still have to practice like unbelievably. There's very few people who can just instinctively step on the field. And yes, there are exceptions in the running back realm as well as the music realm, but it's very rare. And one of those I mean, guys, yeah, certain, certain people learn faster than, uh, you know, yes. John, taking it back to football, Josh Gordon hasn't played football regularly for his essentially his entire pro career. Somehow when this guy steps on the field, he learns offenses extremely quickly, is extremely skilled as yeah. a receiver. That doesn't mean that it's all just instinct. It's just he has picked up that skill side of it faster than yeah. most people could. Yeah. He, has a, that, he has a gift for cer seeing certain things and being able to absorb information, certain information quickly. I would argue a guy who is along that spectrum, maybe not at the end of it like Josh Gordon, but who I thought was last year was doing more with less refinement than I've seen from a running back in quite some time was Antonio Gibson. I thought, Anto I'm looking at Antonio Gibson, I'm going, what you're doing on what I think is raw or unrefined talent is noteworthy. So what have you seen from him? Because I, you know, what I saw was certain movements that were really inefficient, but he got away with it because he was such a good athlete. Um, because he has, he's strong. He has contact balance. He seems to like, he'll make the wrong decision or make the less optimal decision with his feet or with his positioning, but then do something extremely right to correct that. after he screwed up, like it's like I, I don't know how to efficiently approach the situation, but now that I'm in it, I'm gonna, I have a way to to get myself out of it and actually create something awesome with it because I have these base skills. But if I can, if he can eventually learn how to really approach a crease, learn how to develop the, this through the scheme and, and really set things up from the beginning. Oh my God, this guy could be great. I mean, you know, <laughs> again, the, the listeners are going to get tired of us agreeing with each other on everything we say. They want some argument and debate, but I mean, it's, <laughs> I see it the exact same way. When I watch Gibson play, I'm like, man, how did this guy, how did they not just feed this guy the ball at Memphis? Because in, in college football, you have more space. There's much more room for those inefficiencies you talk about. And the athleticism with these, you know, he is really a very unique athlete in terms of being able to run with a football. Those are the guys who have those absolutely bonkers college careers and then go to the NFL and, are good, but may not be as good as you thought they were going to be because they never really developed that skill side of their game. It's like, I don't, for me, when I watch them, like, how did this guy just not run for 2000 yards at Memphis? Um, and I guess it's because they weren't giving him the ball for whatever reason. Um, but I mean, he just, he's, he just brings all of the physical skill set that you, that you would want in an NFL runner. You know, he, he's fast, he's explosive. Um, he has great balance. Uh, he's he's very strong through contact. Uh, he 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 plays extremely hard. He runs hard. Uh, you know he really plays with a lot of effort. Sometimes that effort, 
you know, you'd, you'd have, rather have him be a little more efficient with his skill. And the hope is that he continues to develop that. Um, but like you said, for me, it's like, wow, this guy is really effective. It's, you know, it, it sort of is that like natural talent. He's the exception the to the rule that proves the rule. <laughs> like if there's exactly. an exception to the rule that proves the rule, it's Antonio Gibson bar none in this league. Yeah. 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 I mean, because you'll see him on plays where you're like, he didn't read the leverage correctly on the, at, at, as he approached the run, got into trouble, but then somehow resets his feet to keep his feet under his pads or make this dynamic movement where he can like lift his leg over somebody like what the only other back who can do it is like Nick Chubb or Saquon Barkley, like do some dynamic movement where your hips and your knees and your feet and still somehow keep your balance. And Chubb's better at it than Barkley. Barkley makes insane moves, but Chubb Chubb's moves, every move he makes, you'll look and go, it's subtle and you'll go, how the hell did he do that? Like, and then still maintain his balance. And well, then he Chubb, maintained his balance to cut, you know? Chubb sort of like Gibson, if Gibson were to apply all Study. of that talent in a way that's like efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you took, if like you gave, if you take Antonio Gibson and gave him like an injection of Frank Gore, you know, a la Matrix style and uploaded Frank Gore into him, you'd have Nick Chubb, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So speaking of backs, I mean, yeah, when, when, on. so the one, the one other point I'll make for that yeah. is for me, when you have those backs, like it's, I think Barkley is a good, they don't, it's not a stylistic comparison, but a good comparison in terms of winning with just elite athleticism rather than like refined running back play is it takes a, a defense that is very sound. Those guys tend to struggle against good defenses because yes. You know, if if they don't identify the one crease that's there, there's not a second or third option where they're going to gain yards. Like, you really have to be a good decision maker against those sound defenses because, you know, the leverage, the gap responsibilities, that's all there. So the, the, defense, is, the defense is not going to make the mistake that allows your mistake to go overlooked because you found this other option. Um, so there's a little bit of an inconsistency and you'll see that with Gibson where he'll have these games where he averages, you know, two something yards a carry or three yards a carry um, just because it was a sound defense. He couldn't find, he couldn't find that bit, that big play that you'll get against, you know, like last year he obliterated the Cowboys because the Cowboys <laughs> defensive line, yeah. inter- like interior defensive line just had no chance against any team really. And when you give him space, his athleticism is going to take over and he's he's going to go bananas on you. So if, if he can really develop that skill, I think he'll get more of the consistency that you see with Nick Chubb, where it's very, very rare. If you look at Nick Chubb's box scores, it's very rare to see him have an inefficient game. It almost never happens. Uh, and that's because in addition to the explosive element that he brings, that skill element provides the baseline of turning, you know, a one yard gain into a three yard gain or, a five-yard gain into an eight-yard gain. Um, so with with development, I would like to see a bit more um, skill from Gibson, and I think it'll lead to more consistency week to week. Yeah, because coaches, I think what coaches miss, and some of them catch on to it when they talk about, you know, when they talk about Frank Gore in Miami, and they said, when, he's, when we need three yards, he's going to get us three yards. And part of that, and they may even be missing on what I'm going to point out, but... Running back in a lot of ways with decision-making 
is very similar to quarterbacking where you have certain situations in terms of down and distance, what the play design is, and what the defense is doing against you, the score of the game, the time of the game. And sometimes you have to go, I know this cutback lane might be there, but based on what the defense is doing, based on all of these factors, I need to take what's given to me right here because I need to stay disciplined because I need to keep my team in a proper down and distance situation so that we can keep the playbook expanded. Because if I miss, now it's second and 17 or second, third and 13, as opposed to being third and seven or second and five. And these are things that a lot of backs miss because they're thinking only about, do I find that hole? And what Chubb does so great is he looks at the situation and understands, he goes, yeah, if this defense is gap sound and disciplined, I'm just going to keep hitting what I'm supposed to hit and getting what I can and make them play disciplined all the time until it gets to the point that they start to cheat. Like it may just be one play at the end of the third quarter or the middle of the fourth quarter where they finally lose a little bit of discipline. And that's when he catches them, you know, and that's, yeah. I love it. I love the, I love the, the quarterback lexicon. I love to apply that to running backs, you know, the decision-making, um, you know, interpreting leverage, anticipation, all that stuff that everybody talks about with quarterbacks. It's the same, same thing, that analogy, that whole thing you just laid out, same thing with running backs. And, um, but somehow you know, they like, don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Like, you know, no, no, it's like Patrick Mahomes, right? Yeah. He's going for the home run every play. Yeah. And sometimes he is so talented that he can get away with that. Sometimes you get into trouble doing that, even yeah. for the most talented. You know, the equivalent of Mahomes is like a Saquon Barkley or like an Antonio Gibson, where they can do things that other people cannot do and get away with it. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't improve their game right. by sometimes making the better decision. You know, sometimes it's better to take those check downs, especially the way they're playing the Chiefs, right? Yeah. Now everybody's yeah. playing a deep zone saying we can give up 28 points, just make them take check downs all game. He'll get impatient. You'll throw an interception, whatever. Sometimes you got to do that and keep doing it over and over again. And I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the idea between drafting Clyde of dra- drafting Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was okay. Let's get someone who can be at those options for those checkdowns and make something out of it. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. You're just getting but, choked up because you had such a good time talking no, about choked, running backs for real. I, ch- I choked you know? on some saliva. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, the, the, the idea of just being consistent, taking what's there, and then eventually the defense will have a breakdown and take advantage of it. And the guys who have that consistency are the Nick Chubbs, are the Tom Brady's. You know, Tom Brady is not – He's not afraid to take what the defense is giving over and over and over again until eventually there's a breakdown and it's an opportunity for a big play. Um, yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm all about those QB running back uh, parallels. And then, you know, again, get totally discounted by the analytics side of things, which are evaluating things on more of like a team building philosophy, but then bleed over into the, well, any running back is replaceable. Even NFL coaches, you know, you'll have Matt Patricia say, oh, it doesn't matter which running back is getting the ball. It doesn't matter who's carrying the ball in this situation or that situation. Well, yeah. you know, you yeah. see with teams that miss opportunities because they have guys 
you know, we've talked about this a lot. They have guys doing things they're not good at, or yeah. they have the wrong guy in to do this certain thing. It's so. the same mentality. Honestly, it's the same mentality. It, when you were talking about Shanahan and, and Lynch, it's the same. When you hold a standard that high, it's what Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy brought up a long time ago to me when I when I was railing against the 6-2-2-15 BMI wide receiver movement that was going on early on. And he said that he saw that happening as an NFL scout with some teams that hired hired consultants. And what the problem was is that they were self-selecting too early and kind of cord they were they were limiting their options too early with what they did. There's nothing wrong with looking at two options and saying these are both guys who fit our team. They have great skills that we're looking for, great promise with skills. One of them happens to be 62215. The other one happens to be 58 um, 205. Which one do we want? And and then pick the 215 for reasons that make sense. But if you're going to say, before we even study the tape, before we even look at their, their athletic skills, we're going to eliminate all receivers off the board who aren't 62 210, 215 pounds. And that's what they're effectively doing with some of these things is that they're taking that same approach and now you've you've cut off your ability to actually create around your talent. So speaking of guys who fell through that crack <laughs> and then and then, you know, uh, a coach comes along and decides he's going to take top, Tom Lemming's top 100 high school list and and draft with it. Um, you know, <laughs> as, as, as my buddy Eric Stoner said when, when he watched his Jacksonville Jaguars draft this year, he was like, it just like, he was like, it was literally like they took Tom Lemming's list and just drafted off of it and didn't really know what they were drafting. Um, now you have, you know, Clyde, not excuse me, now you have, you know, Robinson, who, you know, last year had, the, if you want an example of draft capital, when Doug Marone has to ask the brass upstairs, this kid Robinson's looking pretty darn good. I'd like to give him more reps in training camp so that he can compete for a role on this team. Is that okay? When you have to do that, <laughs> when you have to do that, that tells you all you need to know about draft capital because of the investment in dollars and early picks and how you need to get those guys on the field or else not only are you wasting your money, but you're making the people who made the decisions to make that investment look bad. Um, you know, so because the salary differences are pretty vast between these players. So Robinson had a great seat first season. And then, you know, you get the Carlos Hyde. Let's put Carlos Hyde in and play him for a while. Not to mention they drafted a guy in C.J. Spiller that I know I liked a little better than you, but not that yeah, much. You, <laughs> Travis, you said you said C.J. Spiller, another former Clemson oh, running back. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. You meant Travis Etienne. Yeah, same difference. Whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm you sorry. could you could exchange one for the other, and you know you may not notice much of a difference. I, I, yeah, I mean from a running <laughs> style, I'm sorry, I have that Freudian slip all the time. But that's it, all right. I, I didn't even mean it, but it was a good joke. Yeah, there we go. I know who you're talking about. I just want everybody else to know who you're talking about. <laughs> so, what do you think about this whole Jacksonville situation and Robinson? I think Robinson fell victim to the stuff we were talking about. Um, earlier in terms of you know the the explosiveness the speed the measurables obviously a small school guy so those those guys tend to get overlooked a little bit in the in the draft process 
you know, for good reason, it's pretty rare to find successful prospects from there. Um, but he does have NFL size. He's fast enough. You know, physically, he checks the the minimum thresholds in every category. There's there's no physical deficiency that would limit that would be limiting for him to have success at the NFL. Um, in addition to that, what he really is and what his success is built on, and why people don't necessarily appreciate his game as much as they should, in my opinion, is it's very rare to find a running back who has a diverse skill set enough a diverse diverse enough skill set to be good at anything that you could ask a running back to do you know i made the i made the reference with adrian peterson could do anything you wanted to do and he'll be good at it james robinson does that but in a very different way he's he's skilled he's so skilled and he's such a smart player that if it's pass pro if it's zone running it was inside zone uh, you know outside zone gap runs the guy is just a textbook example of what you're supposed to do for anything, anything you wanted to run. And that's the only reason that he was able to earn a role is because he could do everything, anything they ask him to do in training camp, he's going to get out there and do a good job. And, you know, he has a legendary work ethic. The, the stories came out, um, you know, when he was rookie and earning his spot that he would, he would be just essentially just studying his playbook the entire time. So he's a guy who's not going to let, any excuse crop up for him not having success. And one, I mean, and everybody likes to root for those guys, but two, I think that he, he has developed his skill and some guys study is crazy amounts and they can't translate that, but he's able to translate his studies to the field enough to where anytime he gets an opportunity, he's not, he's leaving, he's leaving no doubt. He's not going to have a coach come up to him and say, you know, on this play, you, you, you really made a mistake here and give the coach an excuse to say, well, let's get that undrafted free agent off the field because he's not, you know, he's not executing in pass pro like we'd like him to, uh, you know, he's not running our inside zone game like we'd like him to, Oh, he, you know, he's not explosive enough enough or efficient enough to hit those creases on, on the counters we're running. So let's get another guy in there. Uh, and, you know, the, despite the best efforts to replace him, you know, Travis Etienne, a guy who's really, for me, a, one, a sort of one note player, you know, wins with, with speed and explosion, but doesn't have much else uh, at, at least at this point in terms of his, his toolbox, his skill set to win different ways. They draft him in the first round, you know, Urban Meyer said they, they're looking at him as, as like a, a you know, Canarius Tony yeah. receiver type, which is again, just one of hundreds of head scratching comments and decisions <laughs> uh, by the, the staff since they've come in because even for ETN, you know, if you're going to draft him, well, I hate to tell you, my my hunch is he really would have struggled in that role because I don't think Without a his, doubt. I don't think that his game is built to be that that space lateral agility, uh, you know, chess piece receiver. I mean, he, he's he's sort of a he's he's a slasher running back, and I don't see those guys doing well in the, in, <laughs> right. you know, he's he's not. He's not Kadarius Tony. He's not Tyree Kill. So I, I don't know how it would have gone. I think it wouldn't have gone well. Uh, but obviously, you know, they try to augment or replace Robinson with a first round draft pick. Carlos Hyde, a guy that Meyer is fond of from his days at Ohio State. You know, again, I think recruiting rankings played a large role in who they were bringing in as free agents and the draft. Um, it's just none of it. None of it matters for Robinson because he's so good at so many things that eventually he's the kind of guy whose talent is going to shine through. 
And I mean, I really think that he's one of the best running backs in the NFL. Um, not because he has any particular, you know, hallmark athletic trait, but just because he, his, you know, his, his calling card is just doing everything at a high level. It's funny that we end this show. We started the show with, we, you know, these guys want, players who can do everything and they need to start and they, and they need to lower their bar to basically accommodate players who can do certain things well and fit to that. And we end with a coach who has a back who can do everything well, but doesn't want to use him until it was <laughs> became abundantly apparent that basically it was smacking him in the face that he was making a mistake. So if anything, that just, again, it just tells you that, um, that, you know, we it's kind of like the old the old um will smith um song parents just don't understand you know it's kind of like you know it, it's that I kind mean, there's of thing with running great, backs. there's there's great like you point out a great point i mean there's there's just such great irony in it right because yeah. all the, like you said all these coaches want a guy who can do everything <laughs> they want the guy who's gonna and then you finally have one right and he <laughs> He's an undrafted free agent who his team is constantly going to try to replace until he moves on to another team to somewhere where they appreciate him or, or who knows what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for a James Robinson, there just aren't that many guys around. And so it gets back to the point of, of needing to be able to accommodate guys who have more limited skill sets. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people with an elite limited skill set, Antonio Gibson, you know, getting back another point you made. Okay. In college, he didn't he didn't play very much, probably because he wasn't checking certain boxes that they wanted him to. But you see, you know, in Washington, where they say, well, he may not he may not do X, Y, and Z well, but he can do A, B, and C really well, and so we're going to have him do that stuff. Um, so you know, it's all it's all just a matter of identifying what kind of talent you have on hand, and then, like you said, being that chief of operations who who needs to make sure that we are getting the talent that we have in the building to do what they can do to make sure everything's moving forward in, in a direction where we can win games. Well, speaking of talent, I'm very fortunate to be able to have uh, a guest like Jay and to be able to have guests like Dwayne and Mark Schofield and eventually Russ Landy again. And it just makes it makes podcasting a lot of fun, something that I really didn't think I ever was going to enjoy doing. Um, and having you guys on and being able to, you know, this was like running back therapy. I think that was a very <laughs> cathartic. It was a very cathartic it, episode. Me too, it. man. I didn't realize. <laughs> I started getting angry. Like some of the stuff, like the, the quarterback comparison, I wouldn't have thought of until we had this conversation, like to that degree. And no, then, I always, I all, every time we do this, it always teaches me something new. You know, it's, it's, it's such a fun conversation every time it is, man. It's so much is. And then like, just to, I mean, like I'm angry just thinking about the fact that we, like we started the show, we started the show with, you know, this is, you know, they want someone who can do everything. And then when they get it, they don't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> so you know, that, you know, hopefully you will get a more refined understanding of this. This may not help your fantasy game, you know, in this aspect, but it will develop your appreciation of a position that is vastly underappreciated these days. Um, as the game has advanced, 
Um, for some reason, they've left their view of the position back in the 1960s. So, um, you know, that's that's all for today. But you can find Jay Moyer at, you know, FF Astronauts. You can find him at Jay, um, at Jay Moyer FB on Twitter. And he does great videos. If there's someone who does better running back analysis videos where they are just in terms of marked up showing you what the blocking scheme is and what the running back should be doing with that um i'd like to meet them and shake their hand um because <laughs> i don't know anybody thank you sir you know, no it's 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 fantastic if you're not following jay you're you're you're, you're missing out on a, a massive level and as someone who i i know someone who's talking right now who is very good at running back play so if i'm telling you that there's nobody else I know who does better running back analysis videos that you, you're going to see. Um, I, I think you should listen to that. So thank you again for, um, you know, for listening to this. And you can provide feedback on the RSP um, site as well as, you know, on iTunes. We, I always appreciate a good, you know, opportunity to hear your feedback. And you can check, you can find me at Matt Waldman. I think you guys know that by now. So you guys have a good day. Have a good week and uh, talk to you later.